Welcome back to season two of the Conservative Woman's Guide. I'm your host, Karen Lips. Today, I'm joined by Sharice Trump, the Executive Director at Speech First, for an episode on the Conservative Woman's Guide to DEI Programming on Campus. Before joining Speech First, Sharice worked at the Heritage Foundation as Associate Director of Coalition Relations, and she also served as a Program Manager at the Alexander Hamilton Society. She received her BA in Government and International Relations from George Mason University and her MA in Security Studies from Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Services. Speech First is a nationwide community of free speech supporters who help students protect their First Amendment rights on campus. And Sharice is also the host of Speech First's podcast, Well Said. So Sharice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, better known as DEI, has become a part of higher education from trainings to the growth in administrators to so much more. It's getting some national attention, but I wanted to dive into what is actually happening on campus when it comes to DEI. So could you talk to us about when did you first start seeing DEI on campus and what do proponents say the purpose of it is? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question because honestly, when we if we really were to trace what we identify as DEI uh, today, if we were to trace its root origins back, we could actually trace it all the way back to like the 50s and 60s on, on college campuses. So we're talking about critical race theory, critical gender theory, um, and this is a lot of what DEI um, is pushing through their various initiatives on campus. Um, so, but when we're look when we're talking about DEI in today's terms, um, without thinking so much about the origin, but more about how it's like practically being applied. You know, just in the last decade or so, we've seen a really steep growth on campuses uh, with with this amount of funding, the amount of administrators hired, um, the amount of departments that have been created, and various other initiatives that have been put in place. And that's when we've really seen that steep growth on campuses. Um, so. I mean, a lot of so a lot of the generations on campus right now. This is they're they're experiencing something that generations who've been out of college, um, even for only about ten or twelve years, have never experienced. So I think that's important to note that this is something new that a lot of people have a hard time sympathizing with with students just because they never really had to see it that bad. Um, so uh, how. To answer your question on how they identify DEI itself. So they identify it obviously as diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they use various other um, acronyms and synonyms to describe you know, something similar. So your, your campus might call it something else. They might focus on the word inclusivity more than they focus on the word equity. You know, they, But the, ultimately, we all kind of know what they're talking about. And they do change the letters and the formats in order to hide it better. That is something that we have found as more exposure comes from um, you know, those on the conservative side trying to expose the bad practices happening on campuses that are detrimental to students. What are some examples of that? What else have you seen in terms of what it's called? And- the, so the examples are like they say diversity, equity, inclusion. It's important to recognize that equity, when we talk about those letters specifically, what it ultimately encourages is this divisiveness. And so some really good examples um, that I think you guys talk about in your book is that, uh, you know, when we're looking at freshman orientation. So this is a really interesting way that universities have essentially just use the whole orientation system now to just push as many initiatives as possible. We found in a study a couple years ago that about 90% of the materials in universities across the country in freshman orientations are DEI related or CRT related. And when we say DEI, we're talking about 
teachings on critical race theory, teachings on trigger warnings, teachings on microaggressions, um, anti-racism and gender theory and queer theory, all of that is, is being pushed. Um, and so we're not just talking only about like diversity, you know, it's, it, they don't really ever like say what that is. Uh, and, you know, and when we're looking at the freshman orientation, some of the worst examples that we've seen are things like implicit bias tests where students have to take a survey where they click on, you know, matching various skin tones to positive and negative words. It sounds ridiculous, but students actually have to go through this. And if they click too fast at the end, it tells them that they are implicitly biased, which is the term they like to use, which really means they they think you're racist. So what that does to the student's mind is it makes them paranoid. It makes them think that either they're going to offend someone and they should walk on eggshells, or if they're a minority student, that they should easily be offended and they should be looking over, looking at all of their students through the lens that they are the oppressors and that they have some sort of privilege that they don't have access to. Either way, this creates a serious sense of enmity on campus where students don't see each other as fellows or peers. They see each other as potential targets or potential enemies. Um, so that's, that's created this like serious um, inability to have discussions, to have political conversations, to discuss like really controversial issues that are affecting everyone's day-to-day -day lives. Um, they can't engage because they just, they every time someone engages, they take it personally as if it's a personal attack. And that stems from a lot of what we saw in the teachings and orientations. And that's also built into classes as well. I mean, we have a lot of buy-in by faculty, uh, academic programs, uh, and, and scholarship programs, admissions programs, all of this kind of builds in that same mindset, that same mentality. So there's a serious, um, there's, a, there's a steep growth in the early days and we're starting to see it plateau. But the more we challenge these systems, the more we challenge these initiatives, the more they're gonna find creative and unique ways um, to kind of build it in so that it can't be eradicated on campus. Well, Sharice, you mentioned that study showing that 90, over 90% 90 of orientations highlight DEI topics. I also read in that study that it's around 30% mentioned free speech or viewpoint diversity. Yeah. Can you talk about the different approaches universities are now taking when you compare DEI to free speech and intellectual diversity on campus? Yeah, the 30% of the schools too that showed that they covered, that we found that covered free speech and uh, viewpoint diversity. The interesting thing is it was still a seven to one ratio. And so of, of, of DEI topics to free speech or viewpoint diversity. And that 30%, keep in mind, only represents schools that we saw mentioned it at least once. So some of those schools only mentioned it once. I only mentioned free speech once or viewpoint diversity once. So uh, it's it's still a huge priority for them to cover DEI over free speech. And yeah, you're right. Intellectual diversity. I mean, I talk to students all the time who have to these days go through the admissions process when you're applying that, that tells you to um, to write uh, an essay about um, your diverse background or how you plan to use your degree to contribute to um, diversity in, in America or whatnot. And I asked them, if you wrote that essay on intellectual diversity, do you think you'd get in? Do you think you'd have an advantage? And the students say, absolutely not. They are fully you know, confirmed that they know that they have to write about race or gender or sexual differences. That, that's fascinating that now on college campuses, intellectual diversity on many campuses is not part of 
diversity. Right. And Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, called out Harvard during the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard uh, case uh, last spring about, you know, saying, hey, you have shown us no evidence about how racial diversity specifically contributes to robust exchange of ideas and a better education for students. You have no, you have not shown us any evidence of that. He's like, I understand that diversity in general, like when it comes to coming from different backgrounds and having different experience can contribute to a better education. But you're telling us that racial diversity specifically contributes to that. And there's zero evidence that points to it. And Harvard couldn't provide anything and neither could UNC. Uh, So there's, and it's because people are not just the color of their skin. I mean, I feel like we've We've kind of figured this out in this country that they are—you are not just represented by the color of your skin. There's more to you as a person, as an individual. Uh, you know, we all have souls and minds of our own. Uh, we all come from different backgrounds, even if you have the same skin color. So, that's something that we thought was solved, but is still being debated and argued out today. And intellectual diversity, unfortunately, yeah, universities don't prioritize it because uh, I think it was Thomas Sowell that said any campus that talks about diversity, ask them how many conservative professors they have. Right, ask them because that's we know that 95% of the professors on college campuses across the country vote and donate to Democratic to the Democratic Party. So this is uh, we we it, clearly it's not a priority for universities. And like you said, this is something that you would assume would be a priority because the goal is again the robust exchange of ideas, seeking truth, having the information in front of you so you can challenge yourself to to understand how the world works. And Sharice, students should be aware of DEI because it can really change the atmosphere and the environment on campus and really change a student's college experience. So you, can you talk about what is Speech First doing to address DEI? I know you're working with the Goldwater Institute on some model legislation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, after that freshman orientation report, we uh, actually started to look into what states could do, what their role could be in this. Because I think states, you know, before DeSantis honestly started doing a lot with higher ed, states kind of were not really super, super active. And I think it's just because a lot of legislators either just didn't see their role as being hands-on with universities, or honestly, they were probably afraid. When you look at smaller states where, you know, it's kind of a university town mentality and you have a lot of kind of patriotism and state pride around the universities, especially the ones that are obviously going to be beholden to the states themselves, uh, there's there's a lot of reluctance to step in there and to hold the board members accountable, to hold the university leadership accountable because everyone is an alum and everyone wants box tickets to the football games. So we just wanted to encourage state legislators to step up and say, look, you may have state pride and you may love this university, but if you really did love it, you'd want the students there to not be suffering under these totalitarian policies that are pushing them and forcing them um, into you know, talking about ideas that they just don't agree with. You would care about the students, you would care about the alumni that are coming out of that campus. And so with Goldwater Institute, we've created a couple different model policies, uh, the most recent one being targeting DEI initiatives. And uh, one of uh, so one of those came out of the freshman orientation saying, look, states may not have the government not may not be able to go into the classroom and say that you have to teach the specific thing because that would be a violation of academic freedom. However, for university wide programs that are public uh, at public institutions, uh, you, the states actually do have a role. They could they could mandate certain orientation materials be taught like free speech and viewpoint diversity and the Constitution and our legal system. They can mandate that that is taught in uh, in freshman orientations. Uh, they could mandate that in order to graduate, you have to take a class on civics, uh, which is something that we've seen, obviously, a total 
whole dereliction of in K through 12, which is why students enter the university system not understanding what their rights are, not understanding uh, when they're being violated or what their fellow students' rights are. Uh, a perfect clear example of them not understanding the First Amendment is when you see students who shout down speakers and say that that is them exercising their free speech rights. First Amendment free speech rights do not include the right to, to silence people. So that's something that there's like a clear disconnect on how they're understanding and interpreting the laws in this country and what's protected and what's not. Um, the other part of that model policy actually targets something that we're putting a report out on this month, which is even more insidious than the big DEI initiatives that we're seeing coming out directly out of the departments. Um, yes, cutting off the head of the, you know, the snake when it comes to getting rid of DEI on campus, getting rid of the DEI departments, defunding them, that's huge. The Manhattan Institute and the Goldwater Institute definitely put model policies forward on that front. But we must acknowledge that a lot of this is built into the system um, beyond that. And so once you remove DEI departments, you turn the spigot off. But at the same time, again, you have curriculum requirements. A lot of campuses, which we're going to show in this report, actually mandate uh, students to take uh, DEI courses in order to satisfy gen ed requirements to graduate. And that's full semester long courses for DEI. That's not something out of the DEI department. That is an academic department requirement. So. Again, there's a lot more work to be done, and that's what that model policy addresses is saying that students should not be required to take DEI courses in order to graduate. I'd be interested to see what they're not required to take, right? Like, are they taking Western civilization right. courses? Yeah. Well, that's what the model policy says. So I know you've done some work, you know, obviously pushing back against some of the problems with DEI, but also um, I saw a survey that you all did on bias reporting systems. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and how now um, a majority of the more than 800 institutions that you studied have bias reporting systems and why students should be worried about those? Yeah, yeah. So bias reporting systems, uh, they're these, they're, there's, they go by different names on campuses, uh, and sometimes they use euphemisms or they use like the mascot to make it seem like it's a really nice thing. But we need to understand that this is an anonymous reporting system that asks students to report on one another or on faculty uh, for incidents of what the university deems is bias. And there's a number of things wrong with this. So the first thing, obviously, is what is bias? How do you define what bias is? Uh, the university defines it however it wants because it's a completely subjective and and in broad term that doesn't actually mean much. It just means having an having an opinion or an idea that sways more in one way or the other, or having a preference of opinion. Um, in fact, our case against Oklahoma State University right now specifically says that you can be reported for exactly that, having um, a prejudicial opinion or idea or making a statement in class or in writing that is in more prejudicial in one way over the other. And, and, and that could actually be considered a bias incident that could be reportable. And to clarify, a lot of these are anonymous, right, Sharice? Yes. yes, they are anonymous. Most of them are anonymous. And so when you're thinking about like, what does this remind us of? I always tell students, nothing's new under the sun. This reminds us a lot of what the Stasi did in East Germany when it came to asking neighbors and peers to report on one another anonymously. Uh, and it, it actually worked. And this is the scary thing about this too. Students are actually using these systems. When I was on campus, we weren't using 
like we weren't even aware that there were policies that could possibly exist like this because no one actually read the handbook. But DEI administrators are pushing these emails out very regularly, telling students about the bias reporting system. In Virginia Tech's case, we have a lawsuit pending before the Supreme Court right now against them. They actually have signs in their classroom saying, see something, say something. They're not talking about backpacks after 9-11. They are talking about uh, if you hear or see something that you find offensive, even remotely offensive, then you should be reporting it. They want the student's default to be to report something that they find uncomfortable or offensive. And that, sh that should scare all of us. The other important thing to note about bias response teams is the intimidation factor. This is why we're seeing a lot of student self-censorship more than we've probably ever seen before on college campuses. Uh, you know, when what happens when you get reported for bias or when you get reported for harassment for offending someone or not using someone's preferred pronoun or committing a microaggression or just simply saying a joke, uh, what ends up happening is you get an email, say, from the Dean of Students after someone reports you. Uh, and this is Dean of Students, DEI administrators. These are all members of the bias response team that campuses tend to have. Uh, and so they call you in. You have to go in to explain yourself. Now, any typical student is probably going to abide by what the email says because they're, you know, you have a dean or someone, a figure of authority telling you to come into their office to explain yourself. So even though technically students have the right to ask, is this an optional meeting or is this required? And universities, especially public ones, have to say it's optional, but they don't always clarify that up front. So they rely on the intimidation factor to encourage, to basically manipulate students into coming in. Then when students come in, they have to explain themselves. They don't get to face their accuser. Um, it's a serious, uh, you know, they're, they're sitting there being told like, and again, we're not talking about just, uh, you know, a serious violent act against another student or actual sexual harassment. We're talking about like not using someone's preferred pronoun, saying a joke that someone found offensive or laughing at a joke, tweeting like a puke face emoji at a Black Lives Matter hashtag. These are things just like across the board, they are casting a wide net. You, get, you can get reported for anything. And if you're called in and you're told to explain yourself, what kind of effect do you think that's going to have on the student's future behavior? Do you think they're going to continue to speak up in class? Do you think they're going to continue to express themselves uh, you know, in, in papers or, or talk, to, talk to their fellow students about what's going on in the world? They'll probably clam up. You know, They're going to they're gonna be uh, less likely to engage with one another because they know they could be reported. And in many cases, we've even seen disciplinary action taking place. When students are called in, they actually have to, even though it's already disciplined through the process in such a way of like getting them to come in and the intimidation factor, but actually, they, many schools have required students to write letters of apology or even take sensitivity training after they've been reported, which we call re-education camp, because that's essentially what it is. And, and it's, so again, these are, these are really bad policies and they are bleeding out off of campus. So we think that what stays, what happens on campus stays on campus. Absolutely not true. We've seen that with regards to all of the, 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 you know, critical race theory, critical gender theory stuff is now seeping into businesses like the EF through ESG and their medical programs. But now we're also seeing bias response teams being enacted in places like New York City, Portland. Uh, you know, I think Minnesota has one. So there's a number of, and they're telling you to go to report to police officers. So again, uh, this is just the, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what this could become if we don't start shutting it down now. It seems to me, Sharice, that not enough college students and even Americans understand the value of the First Amendment and free speech. Could you make the case for our listeners today? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something that I, I do like to talk to students about, which is the unique differences between our constitution and our principles and values compared to what a lot of other countries, how they frame their governments, how they frame their legal system. Uh, and it's important to understand these differences to fully understand and appreciate what makes the case for the Amer America's First Amendment and our constitution. Um, first off and foremost, when you read the constitutions or the statement of rights for many other countries, especially even Western countries, which we do tend to say are very similar to us in their governing structures, it's important to recognize the major, major differences in how they think of themselves and how they think of the government. Most of them will say, actually pretty much all of them, will say that they'll outline individual rights. They'll say individuals have the right to speech, but what, two things that they'll do are different from our constitution. One thing is they will say individuals have the right to speech, and then they'll write exceptions in. They'll say, except for in these scenarios, except for if it's offensive, or except for if it's um, you know, some sort of abhorrent language or hate speech. Uh, that's, those are all very subjective terms that whoever gets to define them gets to determine who it's enforced against. And so they're putting limitations already written into their statement of rights. The other unique thing is when you compare it to the U.S. Constitution, we say that Congress shall make no law. And if you look at all of the other portions of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we put the limitations specifically on what the government can and cannot do. Most other governments, the way they operate and the way that the constitutional structures operate, is they put the limitation on the individuals. As I mentioned, every individual has a right to this, except for in this situation, the limiting factors on the individual themselves, not on what the government can do. So that just shows right there the unique way that we think about government and how we, how we understand its role in our lives versus how other countries understand the government's role in their lives. So when we talk about, you know, when, when we get criticism from other countries in Europe, especially saying, why doesn't America have hate speech laws? You know, they're not doing themselves any favors by not having hate speech laws. Well, that's because they are operating in a system that already prides itself and is very welcoming and accepting of restrictions put on individuals by government, even if those restrictions are subjective, even if they're overly broad, even if they could be discriminatorily applied, uh, which in the case of hate speech, it can be because who defines hate? Right? Just like we said, who defines bias? Who defines hate? And ultimately, the Supreme Court in the United States has unanimously ruled time and time again, as recently as 2019, uh, that there is no hate speech or offensive speech exception to the First Amendment. So that is something that is unique to us, and it has a lot to do with the fact that if someone has the luxury of being able to define hate, and they can just say what it is, then <clears throat> it's different to everyone else. So it, for them, hate could be a microaggression and they could start creating rules and policies around a microaggression, which is most universities say microaggressions are asking where someone is from, for example, or why they're majoring in math, like that could be considered a microaggression. So the ridiculousness could spiral essentially, right? And so that's what we, what we have those strong protections in for speech in this country for that very reason. And the Supreme Court, like I said, has ruled unanimously on this time and time again. In my new book, You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College, I mentioned Speech First as a resource for students. Yeah. Could you talk about how students can get in touch with you and how you all can serve as a resource for them? 
Absolutely. So you can find us on speechfirst.org. You can, of course, find us on Twitter and social media platforms, as well as like my Twitter, Sharice Trump. Uh, you can always follow me and follow what we're up to uh, and just kind of look at all of all of the work that we're doing. But we have some really interesting um, aspects on our website that'd be helpful to students. We have a tip line, of course, which is really important. We ask any student who has a tip that um, can, can that have any incidents, any video, any recording, any handout, that helps inform those reports that we put out. It helps inform what we do and what kind of litigation we can take place, you can always reach out to your network of enlightened women leadership and they will connect you to us if there is a potential lawsuit. Um, there's any, you know, sign up to become a member, of course, that's how you keep up with all of our work. Uh, but also once you're a member, we can defend you in the court of law. So once we can defend you, you know, once you're a member, we can actually represent you. And so if there is an incident on campus that you're concerned about, um, feel free to reach out to folks and, and they'll send uh, you our way. Uh, furthermore, uh, of course, we have our podcast, as Karen mentioned, a podcast called Well Said, where I try to educate students and everyone who's listening um, on just free speech and higher ed issues uh, more generally and how that affects the culture in America and, and what, what the bigger connections are. Um, so definitely take a listen to that. And we like to have students on that podcast. So if you're interested in being on the podcast, if you feel like you've got a story to tell, uh, we you know, would love to promote you that way as well. So feel free to reach out anytime. And I'm sure, like, you know, like I said, Karen or any of the leadership at NU can, uh, can connect you with us if necessary. Thank you, Sharice. I want to ask you one more question. Is what advice would you give to yourself in your early 20s? You could go back. What, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Um, the, the best piece of advice probably be, I do tell students this a lot too, um, know that it's, it, I don't want to say it's like not the end of the world when you're on campus, uh, when, when these things happen. Uh, you want to put it on a pedestal to some extent. You want to do well, you want to be successful, you want to take pride in your work. But ultimately, you do not have to have your entire life planned out by the time you graduate college. Students today put inordinate amounts of pressure on themselves and into a point where it creates extreme anxiety and, ex and extreme pressure to where, where they go into spouts of depression. So I would say enjoy your time with your peers. This should be this should be fun for you. The, the, the engaging of ideas should be something that gives you kind of like a high where you, you are debating and you're pushing back on each other and they're pushing back on you. That was the best time we ever had in college was when we would, you know, be sitting around the table and just kind of going at some major political issue or social issue and really challenging each other. The idea that people are so defensive and easily offended that they take everything personally, that really does ruin the culture and climate on campus. But that's because they're putting everything at these very large pedestals of, you know, what kind of conversation they're having. And it's, it's again, it's not the end of the world if someone disagrees with you. It's okay to have a controversial conversation. It's okay to disagree with someone. It's okay to be pushed back on. And also, it's actually probably really important that every now and then you're proven wrong so that you can humble yourself and start to, you know, think more clearly about what your ideas are and articulate your arguments better and do more research. Uh, so again, don't put it on, you know, this huge pedestal where your college experience is defining everything about your life and that you have to have your whole life planned out. Enjoy your time there. Grow your brain. You should be feeling it grow every day. Uh, and that's, that's really what your ultimate goal should be. Well, a good piece of advice that disagreement <laughs> is okay on campus yes. and we should, we should foster more of that, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Therese, for joining us. It was great to learn more about your work at Speech First. 
want to encourage our listeners to check out Speech First. We'll make sure to share our social media on our platforms. And please, to our listeners, if you're not already, subscribe to the Conservative Woman's Guide wherever you get your podcasts so that new episodes are automatically downloaded for you. Make sure to leave a five-star review and share this episode with your friends. See you next week.